0: All right, so, um, you know, I um, don't tell the others, but I like it when there are fewer of us. Uh, I do wish it all sit like this, because I feel funny now doing this while I talk. But um, I I like it because I feel like it's just us, you know, and I can get away with more. But uh, (laughs) uh, anyway, Luke chapter 9. And I'm dropping in at verse 43. Uh, Jesus has just exercised a demon from a boy whose father brought him to Jesus. And the people were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, let these words sink in your ears for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them, so they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. I wasn't here last Sunday because I was speaking at a church in Bellflower. It was at the end of a three-day conference there, so I was working, Gladys. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So uh, afterward, this woman came up to me and uh, told me how much she pray- appreciated the fact that I was there. And I said, well, really, it's my pleasure. I, I love you all. And she said, we know. And that surprised me, because I hadn't said anything to them about how worried I had been for them, how I, I could not sleep Saturday night, and finally got up at 3 in the morning in order to redo my message, uh, because I realized that what I had prepared to tell them, they didn't need to hear. Um, And what they did need to hear was something that would mend wounds and give reassurance and let them know that um, God accepts them right where they are. I guess people figure it out when someone else uh, loves them, Uh, although... um, not me. Uh, it, it usually comes as a big surprise. Um, <laughs> you know it's like, why? Uh, anyway, um, it may not seem like it at, at first as we get into this this chapter, but this is about Jesus' love for you, and it's really important that you recognize that. If Jesus were here today and you say, well, thank you for being here, well, he is here, and, and you tell him afterwards, thank you for being here, he would tell you, well, I'm here because I love you, and I want you to be able to smile and say, we know, we know you do. King Herod heard about Jesus, and he asked a question that hangs over this entire chapter. It's really what holds the chapter together, though it's quite subtle. By now, Jesus has drawn a lot of public attention. He's sent his disciples out to um, extend his ministry through them. And all kinds of people are hearing about him. There's a big buzz. But no one knows exactly how to classify Jesus. He's not exactly a rabbi, though they sometimes address him as such. He's not a scribe. He's not an Essene. Uh, He's not a sage, uh, not in a traditional sense. So what is he? Who is he? Herod heard the speculations about Jesus. One of them was that it was, he was John the Baptist raised from the dead, which caused him no small amount of consternation. Uh, others were saying he was the prophet Elijah. Others said, were saying that he was a different prophet or another prophet who had risen from the dead. Herod heard these speculations and he said, I myself had John beheaded. But who is this man about whom I hear such things? That's the question that flows through the chapter. Who is this man? Meanwhile, Jesus is continuing his itinerary. And in the process, he's taking time apart with his disciples. And then he's teaching the crowds that come. He miraculously feeds this huge crowd of thousands. um, Although Luke doesn't make anything of it. He doesn't try to interpret the feeding, or, or he doesn't say, look, isn't that a big deal? Um, the other gospels do make something of this feeding. John, in John chapter 6, has a whole conversation that follows it based on this, this miracle. Not Luke. He just moves through it. And then in the, the very next scene, Luke revisits Herod's question. In in fact, that he he tends to link this with Herod's question is really obvious, only this time it's Jesus asking. And he's asking, who do people say that I am? And the disciples give the very same answer. Some say John, some say Elijah, some say another prophet risen from the dead. But Jesus wants a more definite answer. And so he asks them, but you, you have been with me You've you've seen me in action. You've heard my teaching. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah of God. Now, Jesus responds to Peter's answer rather strangely. And again, different from in Matthew chapter 16, uh, Jesus immediately says, don't tell anyone. He, he doesn't respond with an affirmative or answer a denial, uh, either yes, I am, or no, I'm not, or you know you, you got it partially right. He doesn't say anything like that to Peter. He, he just says, don't tell anyone. He warns them, in fact. He instructs them, don't tell anyone. So um, he, he then goes on to predict his Betrayal, his rejection, his crucifixion and resurrection. So it's possible that he doesn't want them telling anyone because what is coming will violate their theology of the Messiah. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, after Jesus says these things, immediately Peter says, stop. God forbid, that will never happen to you. You're the Messiah. That can't happen to you. And then Jesus has to straighten him out. Uh, Luke doesn't record that. He, he just says, don't tell anyone. Because if everyone is hearing he's the Messiah, he's the Messiah, and then he's crucified, um, what will follow may be uh, a huge collapse of what he's building up during his lifetime. And people need to see his crucifixion and resurrection in the context of his whole ministry. And so he's trying to feed this to the disciples to prepare them for it. And and when he talks to them about what's going to happen to him, he refers to himself as the son of man. He doesn't say Messiah. Jesus' preferred title for himself was son of man. Now, God at Jesus' baptism and uh, also at his transfiguration says, this is my son. And, And there will be those who call him the son of God. But he calls himself the son of man. Well, he's both, isn't he? Um, he He is God in the flesh, and yet he is in the flesh He is like us he He connects both realms uh, Can you imagine how perfect that is a means as a means of revelation and communication that he stands within our context and can relate to us and communicate in terms we can understand, but he 's communicating from a context we don 't understand at all a context that is complete mystery and he revealing these mysteries to us, the mystery of God himself. Um, So he says, the son of man must suffer many things. This is his assumed identity. Who are you, Jesus? Um, Now, he'll never answer this question directly. But if he were, he would probably say, I'm the son of man. Um, He's the Messiah, but incognito. And the reason why I say that is this is not a term that many people would use of the Messiah in Jesus' time. Yes, there's a reference to a son of man in the book of Daniel, but there is no agreement that that person was the Messiah. Um, But it's close enough that the description of what the son of man does there is close enough that Jesus can take it as a reference to Messiah. So it's a way of saying, here's how I see myself and yet, it, it, though it reveals, it conceals at the same time. He, he is the Messiah, but he's not boldly coming out and just saying that. And he has reasons for doing that. One is, if he wanted to die a lot sooner without accomplishing half of his work, uh, all he had to do was say, I'm the Messiah. And, and then there's real cause for his enemies to stone him. So um, he continues to use this term, Son of Man, through this chapter in, this, uh, in the same place. Uh, he refers to the Son of Man, himself as the Son of Man, but not connected with death, rather connected with glory. Later on, he's going to give what I would like to think of as his mission statement, verse 56, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And then again, in verse 58, he says, the son of man has nowhere to lay his his head. So if you think you want to follow me, you need to know it's not going to be an easy road. All right, so after predicting his death, his resurrection, and the glory that will follow, Luke tells the story of his transfiguration but I sure hope you know the Bible well enough to know what I'm talking about because I don't want to take time to explain all of this. Um, it, um, the the glory of God shines through the person of Jesus, and, and it's seen by his disciples. Three of them witnessed this. So of all the events and miracles and wise sayings of Jesus, this transfiguration event reveals his identity most clearly because his his supernatural um, essence shines through. But it's over so quickly, at least the way that Luke uh, tells the story, that we're not even given an opportunity to reflect on it. It would seem that the three disciples are not even given an opportunity to reflect on it. What does this mean? Or, or wow, what, what did we just experience? Or, this is profound. Nope, we're, we're on to the next thing, which is a father coming with a demon-possessed son. Now, if the plot of Luke's gospel, of Luke's story about Jesus, if the plot is this gradual revelation of who Jesus is, which would also be the revelation of God through Jesus. Then, the Transfiguration would be the ultimate answer. We'll just look at this, and you'll see. This would be the climax of the story. I mean, in other words, if that's the plot, it could end just a few pages later. You know, and they all lived happily ever after, uh, holding hands, circling Jesus, singing uh, Sunday school songs. But uh, well, um, <laughs> isn't that what we're going to do? Uh, anyway, that's not—that's apparently not the plot. It—it it seems like a plot of this chapter, but it's not the plot of the book. Jesus' predictions of his death and resurrection send us in another direction. Now, this is not all it. Not, not on this mountain, this Mount of Transfiguration, but on an, another mountain, it all comes together, on, on Mount Calvary. And um, it's like Luke is, is not saying, this is who Jesus is. He's saying, this is who it is who died for you. Do you realize who it is that died for you? The cross did not define Jesus. Jesus defined the cross by who he was. It's who went on that cross that defined this particular cross. Okay, now you don't need your sunglasses, Barbara. Um, So Luke is... Luke is giving us an idea of the magnitude of Jesus, the majesty of Jesus, and, and he does this rather well. Okay. Which leads us right into the verses that I read already. Verse 33 or 43 contains two parallel statements in which Luke is saying the same thing. And these statements reveal the mood of the crowd. Both statements begin with the Greek word de, de, English transliteration, which would be translated and in the first statement, and but in the second statement. It is a conjunction that can be translated either and or but. And our translators have translated and for the first statement, but, but it's the same word. Also, both statements contain The Greek word pas, which is translated all in the first statement and translated everyone in the second statement. All the people and everyone. It's also translated all when they're talking about all the things that Jesus did. So um, the people are in a state of awe that's been evoked by God's greatness revealed through all the things that Jesus was doing okay so in these parallel statements God takes priority in one statement and Jesus in the other but it's God and Jesus working to de- together together because God's greatness is being revealed through all the things that Jesus is doing so it's, it's actually a beautiful statement I I, I I have to tell you, I changed my mind about Mark. This is my favorite verse in the whole Bible. This week. Now, while the people are lost in wonder, Jesus turns to say something to the disciples. Quick, take up an offering. They're in the right space right now. Take up an offering. Or, you know, pass out flyers for the next big rally that we're going to have. You know, all the thousands coming. Just think how it will add many more. Because they're in the right space right now. Right? I, I've seen this fairly recently. And I won't go into it. Because I, I know I would sin if I did. And I don't mind sinning so much. But in front of you, it's embarrassing. <laughs> um, so Jesus doesn't push or exploit the mood. You know, I have them right where I want them. You know, I've got them in the palm of my hand. Um, there, when I was growing up in the Pentecostal church, there were all these benchmarks, you know, um, and, and you'd hear them all the time. Oh yeah, Sunday night, it was a wonderful service. There wasn't a dry eye in the building. Benchmark, we have to make them cry next week. Um, or everyone came forward when the pastor gave an altar call. If you don't understand that language, you're probably Episcopalian, but, um, (laughs) but, uh, it, a benchmark. Now we've got to get everyone forward. I was speaking at a church in Wilmington one time. I was probably still in my teens, as I recall. But uh, people didn't know any better. I was Chuck Smith Jr. They thought maybe some of it rubbed off. Uh, it, <laughs> it hadn't yet. But um, anyway, the, the, the minister there, and it was a Pentecostal church. The minister there said... When you give the altar call, assuming I was going to, I hadn't even thought of it. And he said, when you give the altar call, everyone will come forward. They always do. You just have to work them a little bit sometimes. Well, I didn't do an altar call message. Um, I don't know I've ever done an altar call message. But um, I mean, every message I preach is a come to Jesus message. But anyway, I got to the end. I said, hey, if you'd like to pray, I'd be happy to pray with you. I'm going to be in the prayer room backstage. And maybe three or four people came back there when I was there, and I began talking to them. It looked like it was going to be fruitful, but I could hear the preacher who took the microphone after I left, and he's yelling. And and um, I mean, I'm sure it's all inspired. But present the whole room filled up with people, and most of them just came in, did their genuflection, and left. Uh, you know, they, they did their obligatory bow the head, kneel, and then they left. It, it was like. Oh yeah, this is what we do Sunday. It makes the pastor happy, you know, because we we hit the benchmark, right? So Jesus isn't worried about benchmarks. When when the crowds gather, he talks to them and uh, sends them away. That's all, folks. And he heads up to the mountain. <laughs> he heads up to the mountains to pray, and it's over. It's, you know, they're looking around. Is that it? Yep, that's it. All right, so. Um, He turns to his disciples. People are in a state of wonder. He turns to the disciples and he says, Let these words sink into your ears. His voice is serious and his words are sobering. Don't get caught up in anything right now. Don't say, Wow, Lord, you know, you, you really won them over or you really impressed them. None of that. You let this sink into your ears. And his desire is that what he has to say will penetrate the surface, that that will go to a deep place in them and make a lasting impression that that his words will be remembered. And later on, they'll be understood and proved to be useful. He doesn't tell them a whole lot about this. In fact, the brevity is amazing. Um, But he could tell them, you're going to need this. It will be very important. It will enlighten you to everything, and you'll be able to find your way through. He doesn't say any of that, but that's exactly what he's, he's giving them. the The statement itself is short and rather cryptic. The Son of Man is going to be handed over into the hands of men. That's what it sounds like when he says it. The Son of Man is going to be handed over into the hands of men. Well, we know the disciples well enough by now to not be surprised that they did not understand this statement. And sometimes it was their own fault. They were slow learners. Or, and and I smile because I was diagnosed a slow learner when I was in the seventh grade. And I spent the rest of my time in the seventh, eighth, up to the 12th grade proving them true. Uh, They were more like slow believers. Remember Jesus on the road to Emmaus with his two disciples, and finally he just says, oh foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And what's he talking about with them? The very things he had just said, about him going to Jerusalem to be rejected and crucified and rise again. And now he's telling them, it's not just me telling you this. All the prophets and the Psalms uh, and the the law of Moses it all says the same thing. And you're so slow to believe. Uh, You're so slow to to grasp this, to latch on to it. So again here, the disciples aren't getting it. Only this time, it's not their fault. We're told it was concealed from them so that they would not be able to perceive it. They were not supposed to understand what he meant when he said, The Son of Man will be handed over to the hands of men. They did not ask him, we're told, because they were afraid to. Well, they had just been chewed out by Jesus um, for their unbelief. Uh, You know, just a few verses prior to this, uh, he had scolded them, so I'm not going to ask him, you ask him. I'm not asking him. So here's the point. It's because they would not understand it when he told them that he told them to let it sink in. You're not going to understand this, so let it sink in. It wasn't relevant right then. It wasn't in that magic moment when the mood is awe and wonder and reverence. it's for another time, but they need it. They need this preparation. Let me give you a piece of advice if you're going to travel internationally. Get your passport prior than two days before you plan to leave. Okay, You, you won't need the passport six months in advance or three months in advance, but get it six months in advance or three, because you don't know what sort of hiccup you're going to have in getting your passport and what sort of extra information they're going to require. And what may have worked in the past won't work anymore because of new laws and rules and regulations. So get your passport long before you're going to travel. Jesus is giving them a password or or an insight long before the moment comes. But they'll have to have this to, to find their way through. It was um, Jesus let them, told them to let it sink in because it was like working on a math problem or solving a riddle. They'd have to let it sink in for it to begin to do its work. They'd have to be with it for a while before it started shining its light, illuminating what was going on. The insight was not for that moment. It was for later on. And, and when it, things started to unravel later on, they're going to be tempted to conclude that the cross meant failure. Jesus failed. Oh, what do you know? Jesus wasn't the Messiah. Look at him dying there. He wasn't the Messiah after all, and then they'd give up on him. Was there a real danger of this? Pretty much, because that's sort of how they responded to it until they saw him risen. So they were responsible to hang on to this statement, but they weren't responsible to understand it. Jesus did not demand that they understand it. They could come to understand if they allowed it to sink in. It would shine light on all that the prophets had said. This hadn't happened yet but it could happen if they'd let it sink in. Um, this is very hard for us. We want everything that we believe to make sense right now. We want everything we hold on to to work right now. And some of it isn't for right now, and it's not going to work right now. And we don't understand. Well, why would God say this in the Bible if it's not going to have immediate results in my life? It's because he's preparing you for something else, or that particular word is for another time in your life. Um, You think you can reap when it's time to plant seeds? You can't reap until the seeds have been planted. It it all works out agriculturally and and also spiritually. So um, God's challenge is not understand what I'm asking of you His challenge is trust. His challenge is not understand. His challenge is trust. And when you trust, you don't have to understand. Dad, why why are you swimming all the way out here into the big surf with me? You don't need to understand. I'm going to help you catch a very good wave, and you're going to have a lot of fun. And I'm not going to try to explain to you why I'm out here with you for this. Okay. Of course, I'm not going to ask because I already know. I wouldn't, would not go out there by myself. You see, God takes us places and he says, trust me. Are you sure, Lord? This doesn't look too good. This doesn't look like it's going to be a good outcome for me. Trust. Okay, I'm going to trust you. And what if it doesn't turn out well? He says, then trust me for that. Because sometimes it doesn't turn out well. And it's always trust. That doesn't change. Sometimes we do understand. Sometimes we, we get enlightened. We go, I, I understand now. Thank you, God. Wow, I have a completely different perspective on everything. But when that's not there, trust. Trust is always there. As long as we're in this life, we'll need to trust. After this life, well, the greatest of these is love. A lot of noise falls on our ears every day that doesn't sink in. And that's normal. It's a healthy function of our nervous system. Uh, and the way it influences the, the uh, technology of the ear so that we're able to block certain frequencies. Um, you know, in a, in a crowded room where there's lots of noise or uh, at a racetrack, the uh, vagus nerve will tense up uh, the membrane in our ear uh, that uh, so that it blocks sounds other than the frequencies of a human voice so that we can hear better the person next to us who's trying to tell us about their favorite race car driver or whatever it is. Um, so we block out lots of sounds uh, physiologically, but then there's just some things we we miss through uh, through a lack of paying attention. And so it's only a problem if we're missing the important stuff. How do lessons or insights normally sink in? Most often, it is through something that interests us. Uh, when my oldest son was in the seventh grade, I, I homeschooled him. Uh, that turned out to be a disaster uh, for both of us. And I, after a year and a half, I concluded, he's never going to be a reader, which is a great disappointment for someone who who is a reader, who's, um, you know, who has nothing else that he's ever accomplished except he's read a book or two. So, so my son, I'm thinking, he's not going to be a reader. This kid, when I'd have him read to me, could hardly read at all. Until like the ninth grade, I don't remember if it's eighth grade or ninth grade, he came to me one day and said, Dad, look at this. Look at this. He had a magazine in his hand. He had memorized almost every page. I'm not exaggerating when I say almost every page of that magazine. He had not tried to memorize it. He just loved the information so much that he absorbed it. He let it sink in. It was a guns and ammo magazine. (laughs) So he's telling me things about rifles, you know, and it can do this, and it's got that on it, it's got that, and I don't even know what he's talking about. And I'm just astounded. You know, he's been holding out on me all this time. <laughs> he is not interested in reading social science and history and you know, and uh, subjects I think are important. Um, red Badge of Courage, nah, never. But guns and ammo, wow, Dad, you know, the world has opened up to me. Reading is wonderful. <laughs> uh, so most often it's interest. If we're interested, we'll let it sink in. We're, we're like ravenous if we have interest. That's how. Children learn. They are ravenous because they're interested in everything at first. If something's big or that will have a big impact, um, we let it sink in. Um, Mr. Smith, the tumor is benign. Oh, OK, wow. What's that mean exactly? Um, that's big. I'm going to let it sink in. Phew. You know, you don't know what I went through waiting for the results of that biopsy. right? If you've ever had one, Um, and there's a a threat attached to it, you know that waiting is, it it can be hellish. Um, So benign. This is big news. Phew. You know, uh, I'm going to tell my family they'll be relieved. If it's disturbing, it may sink in, something that's really disgusting or heartbreaking. Um, Sometimes I have to turn the radio off if I'm listening to the news. Uh, or not read the whole article if it's about a child, you know, left to die of heat exhaustion in someone's truck or car. And, and, And some things stay with us that we wish would not stay with us because they're disturbing. If it shocks or surprises, it might sink in. If it's something we discover on our own, that usually sinks in. I believe that Jesus used parables with people for this reason, not to give them information, but to lead them to the discovery of. And I think that's the only way he could communicate the kingdom of God to them, is to help them discover it through his stories. I think that's what Jesus is doing here with the disciples. The Son of Man will be handed over to the hands of men. Doesn't make sense. But it would make sense when he was arrested. Look, he's being handed over by Judas to the hands of men. Perhaps there are many things God wants us to discover. Because what we discover for ourselves, we own. Those things sink in. How can we let something sink in? And by the way, this is worded beautifully. Let this sink into your ears. Even if it's not entirely an accurate translation, it's more like put this in your ears, which would be an idiom for that time to take this to heart, really really absorb this. But um, he he didn't say stuff this into your memory. We did a lot of that in school. We memorized, 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 took the test, and then the day after forgot it all. Uh, Because our brain will do that for us it will say, you don't need this anymore, let it go. Like someone's phone number or, you know, you remember it just as long as you need to dial it, then you let it go. Sometimes, sadly, someone's name. I'm never going to see them again. You know, so um, the brain says, no, don't bother with that. And the next day you bump into them. Oh, yeah, let me see, five times you told me your name. Uh, (laughs) Want to make it six? Uh, Let these words sink in. Lay it to heart. He's saying, hold on to it in a special way. And we do this with a statement, a Bible verse, an insight, a revelation, when we reflect on it. Mental reflection is a way of looking something at something so that it bounces back insights to you, right? What's your reflection when you look in the mirror? It's bouncing back to you. You looking, right? You see what you're doing when you look in the mirror. Or you see yourself. And when you reflect on a statement, it bounces back to you things that you are uniquely prepared to hear, to receive. And that's one way to let a statement go into you is to reflect on it. So whatever in it is for you finds its home within you. Paul told Timothy, consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Consider what I say, meditate on it, think about it, reflect on it, let it sink in, and God will give you understanding. Rick Hansen said this, I I love his illustration here. Imagine that your mind is a garden. You You can tend to it in three ways. Observe it, pull weeds, and plant flowers. Perhaps something terrible has happened, and you can permit pardon me, observing is fundamental, and sometimes that's all you can do. Perhaps something terrible has happened, and you can only ride out the storm. But being with the mind is not enough. We must work with it as well. The mind is grounded in the brain, which is a physical system, and doesn't change for the better on its own. Weeds don't get pulled, and flowers don't get planted simply by watching the garden. So let this sink in means tend to the garden of your mind. Contemplation is another way we let things sink in. And contemplation isn't so much thinking about. It's not like focused meditation. Contemplation is what we do when we look at our favorite painting. or listen to our favorite music, or savor the flavor of something or the aroma of something. We just allow ourselves to experience the pleasure of it in this present moment. And if you sit at a painting that you love and look at it long enough, you'll begin to see things you never knew were there, And then we can bring a statement into our bodies as well as our thoughts. That is, we can experience it. We can feel it. And that's how it becomes our own. And um, what does that mean? Well, uh, I got good news today. And I'm so happy about it. All right. What does this feel like? is happiness. What does it feel like in your body? Where can you feel it in your body? Your body is releasing chemicals of happiness, happy feelings. And if you wait long enough, it will sink in, and your body will tell you, well, this is what it feels like. Sometimes we just have to be with a statement long enough to feel it and to ask ourselves, what do I feel as I reflect on this statement? How does it bounce back to me? And what does that do in my body? You see, again, memorized information is just up here and it goes away easily. But experienced truth, that stays. And one of my problems is I don't stay with positive experiences Long enough. I'm like Luke. This happened. Move on. This happened. Transfiguration. Cool. Go on. Um, let's, let's go to demon possession now. It's like that's usually me. Jesus is transfigured in all his glory. Yeah, but someone's demon possessed over here. So, you know, I'm with the darkness instead of the light. I need to stay in the light longer to absorb it, to let it rewire my brain. All right, so this week. Will you think about experimenting with this, um, allowing this, this truth that is revealed here, to to sink in? Let this sink in. The cross tells you that broken as you are, you are loved. That's the message of the cross. Broken as you are, you have a savior. Who is your healer? The cross speaks. And it tells you that God can't take his eyes off of you. You mean so much to him. On Wednesday, I was playing grandpa and um, picked up my kids from school, made the mistake of saying, uh, I need to get something at uh, one of the local retail stores. And uh, my grandkids is, all right. Um, They took Grandpa, the three of them, for almost $100. A simple trip to the store, for heaven's sake. So um, we're in the car. Addison, my uh, 11-year-old granddaughter, cute as a button. Addison's sitting in the passenger seat. And she's got the receipt. And I said, hey, don't look at that. Uh, I said, here, give it to me. I I want that. She said, why? And I'm a grandpa. I don't say, you don't ask me why. Um, I answer, why? I said, I want to see what it says. And she said, it says how much you love us. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I reacted. Very clever. Because I know that when I pick you up from school on Friday, you're going to say, how much do you love us, grandpa? give us a Give us a dollar sign, okay, so um, that is what the cross says. The cross tells you how much he loves you. Would you stand, please? This is one of those imponderables to me. Why would God create an 11-year-old who's so much smarter than her grandfather. (laughs) But there it is. May the love of God fill your heart this week. May insights open up to you. Whether you understand them or not at the time, may you discern the ones that you allow to sink in. May the Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father and of the Son,